Hey all, we have a great conversation for you today. I'm speaking with Craig Duper. Craig is a managing partner at Elon Growth Partners. Elon is a well-established and has a strong track record as an independent sponsor focusing on low and mid-market companies. We'll dive in now. In a crowded private equity marketplace with a whole lot of firms, I think we're often asked the question of what is our edge? What makes us unique? What makes Elon special? And I think that my response to that question is always, we've really developed this concept of not private equity, but it's partner equity. And it still has the same acronym, but we view it differently. And what does that mean? Well, we're kind of bridging the gap between passive growth and controlled buyouts. What we recognize in the marketplace, especially at the lower end of the lower middle market, is there's business owners that believe there's tremendous value in their business, but they're mono-invested. Most of the time, the vast majority of their personal wealth is tied up in their business. Once they get the business to a certain level, there's also a nascent fear that they have that decisions they make about operations and how they run the business are suddenly clouded by risk of fear or a fear of loss. You know, if you make the wrong decision, it seems highly consequential to your business. And what we can enable them to do is execute an initial transaction with us where they diversify their personal portfolio in a very meaningful way, take chips off the table, but retain as much equity as they can, recognizing that now they have a highly incentivized partner that has a goal to more rapidly accelerate growth and evolution in the business. So those risky decisions that they were reluctant to make before become a lot easier for them to make because they not only have a partner at their side, but they have a personal balance sheet that feels a lot more resilient. And Craig, tell me about the motivation for creating Elon, because you had a really strong track record and successful career in the private equity and investment banking world before Elon. Is it because you saw the opportunity to develop and the need for this investment style, this partnership investment style that led you to create Elon? No, I think it was more of a, you know, my prior partner, we had a successful track record together, executing in substance the same strategy over 16 years. I think in any partnership, and there was an age difference, there was the ages of our children were different, or his marital status changed during our partnership, things like that, that create divergences and just personal aspirations. And I think that was really the springboard. We had invested in both models. We started out as a pledge fund that was before the independent sponsor term was really invented and then raised a committed fund. And both were great experiences. I just think that partnerships, you know, 16 years was a long time and decided to branch out and increase the intensity a little bit and did that in coincidence with kind of the evolution of the institutional world that really began to recognize the independent sponsor model, appreciate it. And interestingly, some of our institutional investors for the Blindpool Fund are now investors in our independent model. And it's the same folks. They just have segregated pools of capital, some of which they put in committed models and some that they do on a deal-by-deal basis with independent sponsors. I've believed throughout my career as an investment principal, after being an investment banker, that I think in the lower middle market, there's unique value drivers for the business owner that are often neglected or overlooked by typical lower middle market investment bankers. I think the reality is that 
as you go out market, it makes a whole lot of sense to do very broad, deep auctions because the primary drivers are metrics and finance and dollars. Whereas I believe in the lower middle market for business owners, it's very often a whole collection of personal aspirations. And to the extent we can meet those needs beyond just capital, I think that's a further differentiator. And really the partner structure accentuates that. And we kind of self-select out of it. If there's someone that has a successful business, they just want to retire right off into the sunset. There's not a leadership team that may want to pick up the reins and find a partner to help sponsor them in the buyout because we've done that as well. And then by all means, do a very broad, broad process and get the highest dollars you can out of the process. And the data points out that our two-step diversify up front, have a partner to help you unlock the equity value in your business by bringing other resources and processes and repeatability to the business. The two-step process can be more lucrative, even though it takes a few years. Craig, how long has Elon been around? I want to understand the story of how the firm came about and tell us about the types of acquisitions you've made so far. Sure. We have been in existence just over five years. We were, as I alluded to earlier, a spin out of, of my prior firm. It's myself and I was joined by Max Young and he is my partner now along with, we just hired another gentleman named Zach Oseran. He's up in San Francisco. He came out of uh, Next World Evergreen, and prior to that was at Helen of Troy in New York. The impetus was that we all three have a very strong desire to build businesses and create value that way. We're not heavy financial engineers. It's about a fundamentals-focused approach where it's really not rocket science in any way. It's a playbook that is repeatable, that focuses on accountability, systems, processes, visibility, transparency. All those things make an asset more valuable over time. And then if you can grow revenue and EBITDA as well, you've kind of done your job. And you've created the asset that was, when we come along, is very typically a good company, but Often entrepreneurs and founders and family owners tend to underinvest in some of those areas because they seem expensive at the time and you don't really have visibility when you're on the ground on the value contribution that they have and they can, that they can make. And so we always highly encourage upgrading financial systems, ERP systems, always augment the leadership team with additional talent to surround our core leaders with the resources they need to be able to effectively execute at scale. Appreciate that, Craig. Elon is an independent sponsor model for investing in companies, which we've talked already about some of the benefits that can provide to the businesses that you invest in. I'm curious to know how that model affects the way that you spend your time, or let's say the way that a leader of an independent sponsor firm spends their time versus a leader of a firm who has dedicated capital. That's a very interesting question. I've seen both worlds, right? I think that there is the same level, at least at Elon, our independent sponsor model has every bit as much intensity from a sourcing, asset management, investor communication level of activity as, as if we were a blind pool fund. The only difference in our structure versus a blind pool fund and how we behave day to day is really that step where... When we make a commitment to a potential target, 
and go out to circle up the capital. We do go to our fairly short list of institutional investors and do have that process. Now, we view that process as a very beneficial step in being a successful lower middle market investor. And why do I say that? Well, our institutional investor partners tend to be smart folks. They tend to see as high or higher volume of opportunities that we do. And while we spend a very significant amount of time scrubbing the opportunity, sussing out what we believe are all the risks, creating a fairly elaborate investment memorandum, as we would if we were a blind pool fund presenting to an investment committee, instead of our investment committee being the two senior professionals at the firm, which is very typical in blind pool funds, it's not only us, but then it's each of these institutional investor committees that we have the conversation with. And I can tell you that on every one of those conversations, even on the ones where, for whatever reason, it's not a fit for that institution, we get feedback that's highly helpful and that has historically allowed us to make structural tweaks to our investment that de-risk it maybe a bit further than it otherwise would have been. So I'm happy to go through that step. I think a lot of independent sponsors view the model as a stepping stone towards the holy grail of a blind pool committed fund. I'll confess that that was my orientation years ago and I was very hot and heavy. I had to have committed capital because there was this view that, well, if I don't have committed capital, I'm not legitimate. I think that that has completely changed. We have never had a want of capital for quality opportunities. It's really the limiter in our world is quality opportunities with good growth stories that are defensible, that have the ability to generate superior returns over time. That's an interesting point, Craig. And let me know if I'm wrong about this, but at ECA Partners, our interaction with different private equity firms and independent sponsors, historically, what we've found is that an independent sponsor is somebody who wants to be a private equity firm, but they need to get a couple wins under their belt before they're able to go out there and raise a fund, a dedicated fund. These days, though, and I think Alana is a great example of this, the independent sponsor model is the strategy. It's not a stepping stone to becoming a private equity firm with dedicated capital. Am I right about that trend in the independent sponsor world? Yeah, yeah. And I think I do have a bit of a unique perspective because I have seen firsthand both models in action with the same strategy. So it's a pretty decent little sample set. I think the negatives of the blind pool fund are these artificial externalities that are driven by your capital structure. You've got institutional investors, many of whom are focused on this concept of velocity of capital above and beyond absolute return. You are faced with circumstances where because of this accruing management fee that you're going to have to pay back with your preferred return, by the way, very reasonably, your institutional investors want to see on a quarterly basis what you're looking at, what you're doing. Are you working hard enough to justify that fee accrual? Because they want to be comfortable that at the end of the day, the portfolio is going to be strong enough to be able to not only pay those fees back, but generate a return for them. So that's on the institutional investor side. What those factors end up translating into, I believe, negative forces on the business owner side or the partner side, especially when you're doing our style of deals where you have very significant partner role in the transactions, is there's a whole host of negative or non-best business practice drivers that can influence decision making. What do I mean by that? That can be decisions on when the appropriate time is to harvest the investment. Do you want to be constrained by fund life cycle 
concerns. Oh, it's our last asset in the fund. Or we need a win, so let's take a harvest early here because we're raising fund two or three and we need that data point. Both of those are pretty isolated and should be completely cordoned off from your decision-making as to what's best for that business and that business's investment performance over time. And when we have partners in the transaction that have as much skin in the game as they do here, we always are looking at what is the best strategy and outcome potential for this specific business. And we spend a tremendous amount of time you know, because that's much more art than science in assessing the risk to continuing to operate versus the reward of harvest today. But it definitely allows flexibility in the independent model as opposed to the committed model with these vying interests or objectives beyond what's best for the business and that specific investment. Those are really good points, Craig. And I can see what you're talking about, the timeline here. If we think about a public company, of course, they think quarter to quarter. A private equity firm with dedicated capital is thinking probably five years to five years or so, or fund to fund. Because as you mentioned, in order to raise that next fund, they need to show that they generated a return with their last fund. Independent sponsors, though, you're able to think even longer term or shorter term, whatever makes the most sense for the business and those investors in the business. So if I'm selling my company, I can see the benefits of going with a good independent sponsor like Elon but one thing that might give me hesitation is that if I'm talking with Elon and then I'm talking with a private equity firm with dedicated capital, should I be more confident that the private equity firm with dedicated capital is going to close the deal, whereas there might be some uncertainty with Elon? Or how do you answer that concern if it is a concern for some of the companies that you partner with? It's definitely a concern. And, you know, we had the conversation earlier about the low barrier to entry to being an independent sponsor, right? It takes $200 to print business cards and get a landing page on GoDaddy. So you have an email with your firm name on it, right? I think in the marketplace, there are a lot of those folks, they're kind of syndicate shops where they're trying to get a deal under letter and then hopefully get it closed. I think there's a difference in the independent sponsors with seasoned track records, with longstanding institutional relationships. And for the business owner, what we do is we give them a list of references. And at times we've given comfort letters from our investors and say, look, we've invested with these guys before we support them. It's not an availability issue. It's a capital structure decision by the firm. And we're supportive of that. I think there are in the investment banking community because they're sole focus and I'm a recovering investment banker. So I'll, you know, I'm guilty of this too. Your number one objective is to get the deal closed. So anything at all that could rock that deal closed boat could be spun as a negative. But again, for the right partner, for the partners we're looking for at the end of the day, they understand the trade-offs and flexibility in access and lack of external forces querying decision-making vis-a-vis their equity role in the deal. How do you find the businesses that you end up partnering with? It's interesting. We've done a whole host of different things. There's the standby network-driven deal sourcing, which is just spending a whole lot of time with networking meetings and sitting down with service providers that have relationships with business owners. And that's not particularly scalable. Our second platform investment at Elon was our first start-to-finish tech-enabled sourced deal, if you will. What we've done is we've spent a whole lot of time really collating and curating 
our collective databases of contacts among the three professionals at the firm, put them in very usable format in Salesforce where they're easy to do queries based on function and our historical contact with them. And we can do very targeted, highly personalized email outreaches that are appropriate to select subsets of that large database that we have. And in the case of Custom Power was the name of the company that we identified this way. We had done a pretty narrow service provider screen. I want to say it was 75 emails and got a very strong response from folks on some just general issues of the day and catch up and a reminder of who Elon was and the profile of deals that we look for. And it happened to be an individual that I had worked with in the past who was in a relationship with the gentleman that was running the business and made the introduction. So kind of a start to finish tech enabled hot lead, if you will. And, you know, in that situation, we came in and were introduced to the principals of the business. This gentleman had been running it for 17 years and needed a sponsor and the buyout and the rest is kind of history. But we've done those types of activities. We've even done a few highly targeted direct mail campaigns. We did that when we first moved the headquarters office out here to, to Park City, Utah. You know, that's a fairly tough game just in terms of response rate. It can be much more expensive than electronic, but if done the right way and thoughtfully, it's been able to open some doors when we've said, hey, there's a specific industry or category that we really want to go after. And we spend the time to get as much information that's public about these private companies and then try to mine our database against the folks that know the leadership teams and stakeholders at those businesses. Craig, there's only three of you at Elon. You have a lot going on. You have a well-established portfolio of companies that continues to grow. And you're always looking for new deals and working with your investors. How do you spend your time, if we think of it split between deal sourcing, looking for new deals, versus time inside of your portfolio companies, working with those leaders to help them grow those businesses? No, it's a great question. So we are a very thinly staffed shop. I think we do a good job of using outsourced resources where we can, especially when it comes to accounting, executive search, which could take a lot of time if we tried to do that all ourselves, And that's something pertinent to you, I know. But in terms of time per week, it's highly variable depending on what initiatives are going on at our various portfolio companies, right? We have a weekly team call that's usually a few hours because that's updating port coactivity in addition to our pipeline and any other administrative issues we have as a firm. There's often, depending on our situation with adding to the institutional investor roster, there'll be a segment where we update the team on those conversations. But then we have calls on a weekly basis with each of our leadership teams for the portfolio companies. Those tend to be a little more perfunctory, check-in, depending on what's going on at the company, where can we be helpful. And we'll divide that up by coverage responsibility. Again, with three of us, you've got to be mindful of when all three of us have to be involved on every one of those calls. I would say that in terms of division of labor, I'm primarily involved in sourcing. Zach, newer member of the team, is providing a whole lot of analytical support when needed, but he's also out beating the pavement, sourcing it in his own right, given his past relationships. And Max is close to me in the division of labor and in the, the division between being liaison for portfolio company management teams 
versus outsourcing new opportunities. You know, we are also very active and proactive in communicating with our limited partners, our investors. So we have monthly reports that we provide to them that provide an update, not only on their portfolio company investment, but then just activities that are going on in Iran. And then there's always the desire to selectively broaden the institutional investor family. So we will attend conferences. I have a running list of calls that I make because as you may or may not be aware, but the institutional investor community is a very long sales cycle and it's built on relationships and trust and visibility on what you've been doing. And so I have a fairly regular, you know, I call it quarterly list of folks that I'll call up just to catch up with, let them know what we're doing, any developments at the firm and ask them the same thing. Those types of conversations, I think, build comfort because they not only show that you're active in the marketplace, but that you are interested in what they're seeing and you're collaborative. And again, those activities build trust over time. Thanks for that, Craig. One other thing that I was interested in, what types of companies is Elon most interested in investing in? I'll just start with our purely objective criteria. I mean, we're looking EBITDA two to seven million when we come along. We'd like to write checks, all equity of five to 25 million. We have four kind of intentionally broad verticals that we target. We like those verticals because we've had success in those verticals in the past. So, and that success has allowed us to develop relationships with domain experts that some of whom are our operating partners. And we do have an operating partner model that we are very proactive about. So those four segments are the first we call engineered products, which is really precision manufacturing where there's either true intellectual property or trade secrets that provide barriers to entry, what we call niche software, which are pretty tough opportunities to find, frankly, but we've had success on a couple of occasions in the past in those verticals. And that's where the company has essentially been an IT services business, but has some recurrence that can be commercialized and helped to be evolved into a software business. You know, in those cases, you can buy at an EBITDA multiple and sell on a revenue multiple. Our next vertical is food and pet manufacturing. Again, kind of a derivation of manufacturing. One of Milan's platform investments is an ultra premium pet food brand. I have some experience in the past in the food sector, food manufacturing sector. And then the last is the most broad, but it's B2B services where there's either uh, customer contracts or laws of nature stickiness to the customer relationship. And so those are broad verticals. I gave you a little color on each one that can hopefully give you the things we like. I mean, we like total addressable markets measured in the hundreds of millions. We like growth, not necessarily explosive historical growth, but uh, proven ability to grow. We like industries where there's a large diversity of players, you know, where you can have some smaller players, some middling players, and then maybe some 500 pound gorillas in the industry. And that can provide many exit opportunities if you can evolve the business to the point where it gets noticed by those players. Just some kind of broad market dynamics that we look for. I mean, things that will make us a little gun shy. I mean, we've struggled and we're intellectually struggling right now in the consumer segment, trying to determine you know, what the future holds there. We feel like the consumer is being stretched. So consumer businesses that are purely product businesses and discretionary, we think are going to be a little difficult in the medium term here. 
most things like customer concentration, we'd like to figure out a way to mitigate that and convince ourselves that it's either endemic to the industry or that there's a path towards minimizing that concentration again, because that represents risk. We like looking for businesses where there's ample tuck-in acquisition opportunities. I mean, we don't rely on those tuck-ins for our investment thesis because we think that doing so would introduce a level of risk that we don't love. <laughs> but if you look at us historically, we've been very open to accretive tuck-in acquisitions and, and like having that lever to pull, especially as finance folks. If we have a crack operating team that's in there operating the business and we can be helpful in identifying potential accretive add-ons, then that's great. Thanks for that, Craig. That's a really helpful overview of Elon, as well as some insights into the market itself. Is there anything else that our audience should know about Elon before we wrap up? I think one thing is I just was having a conversation with, I was at a, a little event where they had a round table and they were talking about the negative perception of private equity. And it was mostly business owners there, mid-sized business owners. And it became a bit of a bash fest of the private equity industry. And I think one of the reasons that Elon has been successful and that I've been successful prior to that is a view that's much more oriented towards service and also a view that's oriented towards doing what you say you're going to do. I mean, at Elon, we're really careful about language when we're dealing with potential partners, you know, business owners that are talking to us about potentially partnering with us. And we make it very clear, you know, it may sound like we're being a little paranoid or weird at times because we're going to qualify things and be very explicit about what we say. But human nature being what it is, we don't want to be in a situation where we've implied something or that we've tacitly agreed to something because there's nothing worse than feeling like you're building a partnership or a relationship with a firm or an individual for that matter. And things change relative to what your expectations were. So we're very, very explicit, very careful with language. We're very focused on our written product to make sure it's absolutely clear and not subject to interpretation in a way that, that would mislead or make someone feel like that they weren't completely in agreement or fully understanding the implications of whatever matter it may be. So I think that those factors are permeate Elon's culture. We're all ex-bankers or service providers. We've had stents in operations, so I think we can relate to business owners maybe a bit better than some who have not had to actually take the reins of a business and run it. And Elon itself is an entrepreneurial venture. You know, we're going a little bit against the grain and insisting that independent sponsor is the best model. And I think that all those factors together and the fact that at the end of the day, we realize we're not the smartest people, but we know a lot of smart people that will take our call. So, I mean, I think that that fact as well can help us potentially, you know, stand out again for the right partner. And we take a very pragmatic view that the fit's got to be there. Chemistry is important, but I do think that we provide an alternative to what's out there for especially that middle market founder or family business owner that really believes in the future of their business, wants to participate in that future, but just wants to diversify their personal portfolio and have a thoughtful service-oriented partner by their side. Thanks for that, Craig. Craig, I always appreciate our conversations and enjoy them. Thanks so much for joining us on Not So Private Equity. Well, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it.